from KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. The pandemic we're all moving through has challenged us in many ways. The difficulties of the past year reach from our children who may be struggling with the isolation of remote learning to adults struggling to feed their families. In this episode of Straight Talk, we look at some of those struggles and how we can answer the call to help. As the months away from the classroom drag on, many students are feeling isolated, maybe depressed. The CEO of Albertina Kerr, Jeff Carr, joins us with more about what's happening, the signs to look for that someone's experiencing mental health issues, and how to help. And later, hunger has nearly doubled in Oregon since the pandemic began. The CEO of the Oregon Food Bank, Susanna Morgan, joins us with how the pandemic is impacting the Oregon Food Bank and how you can get help if you need it or give help if you can. But first, welcome to my guest, Jeff Carr. He's the CEO of Albertina Kerr, one of the largest and oldest human service organizations in Oregon. They offer help to kids and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and to young people with mental health challenges. Welcome to Straight Talk. It's nice to have you here, Jeff. Thanks, Laurel. It's great to be with you tonight. Jeff, how would you describe how this past year without in-person school is affecting our children, families and their mental health? Well, I think it's been a challenge for everyone, um, for parents, you know, who are uh, stuck at home, if they're if they're fortunate enough to be able to work from home with their kids in their house. Um, kids have been away from all their normal social activities and relationships in many cases. And I think it's just an, it's been a stressor on everyone. I, I think it's hard to believe, you know, we're only about a month of about six months away, six weeks away from uh, it being almost an entire year that we've sort of been living in this new reality. And Jeff, we're going to talk about a difficult subject. And as we do, we'll run some helpline numbers on the screen if you or someone you know needs to talk to someone. Data nationally and here in Oregon doesn't show an increase in youth suicide, but it does show more young people have had thoughts of suicide. In an editorial in The Oregonian, Jeff, you cited a survey last fall by Mental Health America that found 51% of 11 to 17 year olds said they had thoughts of suicide or self-harm for more than half of the previous two week period. What does that say to you about the current situation and about the future? Well, I think it says a lot. I think, first of all, it says that kids are really struggling. And if we don't think they're struggling, uh, we, that data, I think, shows you they are. The good news is that kids up to that point in time in last fall hadn't begun to act on it. We are seeing, um, unfortunately, some situations where kids are acting on it. There was an article in the New York Times this last week about, um, about I think, 17 suicides in Las Vegas school district. And so um, I think we really do, as adults, need to be really aware that kids are struggling um, and stay connected to kids so that we can ensure that we're tracking with them. And if they start to have those kind of thoughts, we have a way to begin to reach out to talk to them and care for them. And now we're hearing that, you know, a lot of kids some in Beaverton may not be going back to school this year, middle schoolers and high schoolers. So we're not through this yet, are we? No, and I, I think, you know, one thing that's important to remember is, you know, those of us that are adults, uh, our runway of life is much longer. And so, you know, while it's been a long time for all of us, we recognize that's not the entirety of our life. But if you're 12 years old, a year is a huge amount of time in your life. And so I think that's where um, time and the difference in the way we experience time as adults versus kids or adolescents makes it even more acute for kids and adolescents who are struggling because it just feels like 
this has gone on forever and it may not end. And that feeling of it may not end, I think is where kids start to feel hopeless and just start to give up and say, maybe this is not worth being here. And that's where we really start to, to get into the danger zone, I think. And we're going to put up a graphic now showing some warning signs to watch for that your child or a friend may be struggling. Jeff, will you walk us through some of these warning signs? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is, you know, hopefully parents really have a pretty good idea and understanding and know their kids. And so when you see these sudden changes, uh, whether it's in, in eating or sleeping habits or if they, they normally are a very talkative kid and they start to withdraw, um, or they're isolating themselves from you or their close friends, any of those kinds of things that you, you see that are not normal triggers for them, you want to you wanna pay attention to those um, because those are the kinds of things that would tell you maybe there's something going on with that child that actually they're not talking about and you really want to engage them um, and begin talking with them about those kinds of things and other things. You know, we've heard from parents and therapists that the wait is long to get in to see a counselor or a therapist. What can parents do in the meantime to help their children who might be struggling? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is um, is to talk to your kids. And I know when I say that as a parent of two college kids now, but uh, that's hard. Uh, I don't think we get trained well on how to talk to kids, but I think the most important thing is to really check in as hard as it may be to push through that and really check in with kids. I really think it's important to be transparent about your own feelings. I mean, this has been hard for all of us. And I think to say to your child, I'm really struggling. Sometimes I feel depressed. Sometimes I, I don't want to get out of bed, you know, to really let them know that you're experiencing some of the same, same things that they're experiencing gives them the freedom and maybe the confidence to start talking about um, some of the things that they're feeling. And if that stuff just keeps going on, I really encourage people to reach out uh, to their healthcare provider or to community-based uh, mental health providers uh, that are you know, throughout Oregon to get help, um, particularly if a kid starts talking about, um, about dying or wanting to die. And, and I think it's important, you know, the, really when it comes around suicide, if a, if a kid starts talking about how they want to die or they have a plan that's when you really know they've gone beyond um, just you know, considering it. And we do have that helpline there on the screen. Jeff, you talk about talking to your kids about their feelings, being transparent about how you're feeling. Will you give us an example, sort of role play for us of how a parent might talk to their child about how they're feeling? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I might say, uh, especially if I was with my kids and we've been cooped up in the house, I might say, you know, are you getting sick and tired of me? Because I'm kind of getting a little tired of you, you know, I'm sure we're getting tired of each other. And maybe use a little bit of humor to get them to start talking and then say, you know, this is really hard, isn't it? It's hard for both of us. Um, and we got to find ways that we can we can encourage each other. And, and sometimes I need you to encourage me and I want to encourage you. And so I, I think talking to kids really straightforward um, to be direct, but to be warm and comforting. Um, and not being afraid to talk about maybe if you need some help yourself. Um, I think sometimes we think kids can't handle um, certain conversations and I think kids are much more able to handle difficult conversations than sometimes we uh, as adults think they are or frankly sometimes uh, as maybe we're able to handle those. So I really encourage people to, to reach out in those different kinds of ways. 
Mental Health America ranked Oregon 47th when it comes to youth mental health, which means we have a higher prevalence of mental illness for youth. This is before the pandemic and lower access to care than all but three other states were right near the bottom. The pandemic didn't create the problem. It exacerbated it. And as you and I have talked, it shined a light on the challenges we have. Jeff, how can we do better here in Oregon? Well, I think there's a few things. One is, um, you know, that unfortunately, there's still a lot of stigma attached to mental health and mental illness. And I think one thing is, is just the more we talk about it, the more, you know, shows like yours that are discussing this and we sort of normalize it. I like to say, you know, if we're having a problem with our heart uh, or, you know, we don't have any problem going to a cardiologist and we tell everyone that, right? But when we when we seek out help for mental health issues, sometimes there's a stigma associated with that. And I, I like to just say, well, you know what? Our brain is probably the biggest organ in our body. Uh, and we don't have any uh, uh, fears or feeling weird about going to talk to someone about other organs in our body that need help. We should feel the same way with brain, our brain. And so normalizing is one thing. I also think, you know, unfortunately in Oregon, we have a shortage of mental health care workers. And one of the things that I know a lot of us in the field have been calling for is some incentives on the part of states to get more people to begin to train for the, uh, to be uh, caregivers and professional therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists so we can have more professionals who really are, are scarce in the field here in Oregon so that we have more available access and not just in metro regions like Portland, but particularly in rural Oregon, where we just don't have the kind of resources for families who live in those rural areas in Oregon as well. The legislature's in session right now. Are you encouraging lawmakers to come up with something to encourage people to go into these fields? Yeah, I think there's been a discussion about uh, enhancing, um, you know, college scholarships or loan forgiveness programs for people who choose. And there are some of those available, but I think putting more resources into those um, to incentivize uh, young adults who want to go into the mental health uh, profession. I think those are all things, you know, particularly if you think about the student debt that, that uh, professionals who get a bachelor's degree and then have to get a master's degree. And if you're a child psychologist or a psychiatrist, you're getting a doctor's degree. By the time they finish that road of education to be qualified professionals, they've they've racked up significant amounts of debt. So I think that's one particular thing that I think could be done. And then just, you know, the, the daily workers, like in our crisis psychiatric facility, you know, those are relatively low paid jobs, uh, which sends a message that we don't really value um, the folks that are on the front lines caring for our kids. And so I think finding ways to increase those wages for people as well would be really important. And this is related to, we're going to shift gears for a couple of minutes, but it really does connect with what you were just saying. You have some very exciting news happening at Albertina Curve, the Gresham campus, a groundbreaking of 150 units of affordable housing that happens on February 17th. This is a dream really coming to fruition for you. It started with someone you know, Jeff, experiencing homelessness. Tell us how that motivated you to make this happen. Yeah, when I came to Albertina Kerr and, and, and was honored to become the CEO in, in July of 2016, about six weeks into it, I, I met, a, I saw a manager at an event and who I'd met a couple of weeks before and I asked her how she was doing and and she said, do you really want to know? And and she proceeded to tell me that we had a, a an employee with five kids that was living in a tent. And I, I couldn't believe that we had someone who worked for us that was in that situation. And so it really started me on this odyssey of saying, um, you know, it's first of it's immoral that somebody who's working full time and caring for other vulnerable people finds themselves being housing insecure and as vulnerable themselves from a housing standpoint. But second of all, it's an existential threat to our social safety net. I mean, we rely on providers and organizations like Albertina Kerr 
to care for some of Oregon's most vulnerable citizens. And if we have workers who are as vulnerable as the people that they care for, um, that's a recipe for disaster for the thousands of people who rely on those caregivers. And so we're hoping that this will be the beginning of not just the first time in, uh, in Oregon that people start to think about, you know, these workers uh, who do these jobs, they deserve a, a living wage and we've worked on raising wages and we're continuing to do that. But unfortunately, wages are not keeping up with the cost of housing. And so this is our attempt to both address that issue and then also to provide some units for people who experience a disability who also would like to live in a more inclusive community but often can't afford a place that's accessible or if it's accessible, it's not affordable. And so we'll have 30 units that will be sprinkled throughout so we'll truly have an inclusive community on that property. And you told me, Jeff, the icing on the cake is that this will be the largest affordable housing project in the Pacific Northwest that is net zero. Yeah, it, I didn't know really much about that. I mean, we certainly wanted to build this building in such a way that was uh, it was green and contributing to the environment as opposed to causing more damage. And so, yeah, it'll it'll actually produce enough solar on site that we'll actually be able to produce more power than is necessary to uh, to operate the building. And the great thing is we're gonna we're gonna give that benefit to the residents. So everybody who lives in that property will have no they will pay no sewer, water, electricity. And they'll also have high-speed Wi-Fi internet access. So when they pay their monthly rent payment, um, that really will give them what they need to live um, at least somewhat of a comfortable um, life. And the rents will all be substantially lower than what the market affords. So we're really excited about it. We'll be hearing a lot more about it when the groundbreaking happens February 17th. I'm sure we'll be doing stories on it. Before we go, Jeff, we want to put up those helplines once again. If you or someone you know is experiencing depression or just needs someone to talk to, these helplines are open 24-7. There's always someone there who can help. Just a 30 seconds left, Jeff. Is there a final message you'd like to leave with people today? Yeah, well, first of all, Laurel, thank you for covering this issue. Like I said, I think the first step is really to remove some of the stigma. I hope people who are watching the show, if they or their family or their children are struggling with mental health issues, please, please call one of those numbers that's on the website. Um, it's, it's everybody needs a little help, right? And there's nothing to be ashamed of that. And our brain is just a big organ like lots of other organs in our bodies. And so if it's not working correctly, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Go get the help that you need. Jeff Carr from Albertina Kerr. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. You bet, thank you. And when we come back, we look at how the pandemic has impacted hunger in Oregon and where you can get help if you need it. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. A study by Oregon State University estimated in May of 2020, just a few months into the pandemic, one million Oregonians were experiencing food insecurity. They didn't know if they'd have enough food for their families. The Oregon Food Bank and its 1,400 partners have been there to help. Joining us now with more on how the pandemic has impacted hunger in Oregon and where you can get help if you need it, welcome to my guest, the CEO of the Oregon Food Bank, Susanna Morgan. Welcome back to Straight Talk, Susanna. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. Up until the pandemic began, Oregon was really seeing some great improvements in addressing our stubbornly high food insecurity rate. And then the pandemic hit. Tell us what happened to the numbers. Yeah, 
We estimate that before the pandemic, about one in nine people in Oregon were um, worrying about feeding themselves and their families. That number has increased and nearly doubled. We are guessing the number is between one, um, one in four and one in five based on information from Oregon State University right now. That is just staggering. It's the worst rate of hunger that we have seen in a century. So how is the pandemic impacting the Oregon Food Bank and its work and its partners? Well, obviously, it is our job and our, um, our joy to uh, distribute food throughout Oregon and Southwest Washington and to ensure that none of our neighbors experiences hunger during this public health crisis. So we have been working flat out. And by we, I mean the more than 10,000 people who work at the 1,400 food assistance sites, the 21 regional food banks, and the five facilities run by Oregon Food Bank in getting food out to our neighbors who need it. In our first segment, we talked with Jeff Carr from Albertina Kerr about how the pandemic has impacted children. And food is also a big part of that picture, isn't it, Susanna? How, how is the Oregon Food Bank trying to curb hunger for children? Yeah, it is a really big part of that. And thank you, um, Laurel. We, obviously, all of our food distribution efforts reaches everyone, families, kids, seniors, um, single folks. Uh, our pre-pandemic information showed that uh, one in three people who got food from a food assistance site was a child, was under the age of 18. We also have been advocating for other efforts that have helped feed our children. The biggest of which has been the pandemic EBT program. This is a new program set up by the federal government to funnel funds, cash assistance to families whose kids, K through 12 kids, would have gotten a free or reduced lunch at school. And I just saw a report today that said that $10 billion has been distributed through the federal government to get to those families through the pandemic EBT program. So that's great, really important grocery assistance. Talking about federal funding, the Oregon Food Bank got some relief from the COVID-19 relief package. Are you advocating for more in this next round and how is that money helping you? Yes, um, we uh, were able to ask the emergency board of the state legislature for $2.9 million in December. That is turned into food already, food that has arrived at our main facilities or food that's going directly to regional food banks and partner agencies across the state. We anticipate that we will need that same amount again in another eight weeks or so in order to see us through the spring. We were also um, glad to see that the stimulus package that was passed by Congress in the last days of December included more funds for the um, TFAP program, which is federal commodities that flow through our system that will help us also get through the spring. The Oregon legislature is in session right now, and I know you're working on some bills that you hope will help address hunger. Can you tell us about some of those bills? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Clearly, one of the things that we've all seen that the pandemic has done is made it harder for people to pay rent and stay in their houses. Um, and we know that uh, hunger is a function of all of the things that your family needs to be able to afford and that rent or food becomes a critical question for folks. So we continue to advocate for um, the foreclosure moratorium extension and funding for emergency housing and homelessness, knowing that if we can help ensure that people stay in their homes and are able to meet their rent, 
that they will also be more food secure. So that is one big thing we're advocating for. We're also advocating for um, funding to help support students on college campuses. Interestingly enough, before the pandemic, the single most likely person to be food insecure was a two or four year college student. 40% of college students faced hunger. And so even in these difficult times, we wanna follow that through and make sure that we are taking care of all of us at all stages of our lives. I know you wanna help erase the stigma around hunger. How is stigma affecting individuals and families, especially right now? Yeah, before the pandemic, 890,000 people, give or take, were accessing food assistance. That number, as you've heard, has grown somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 million people are accessing food assistance. And we're regularly hearing at food pantries, I, I never thought it would be me, I've never had to ask for this before. And I think it's very hard. I can imagine for me and my family how hard it must be um, to face the fact that you've come down to the end of the week, there's nothing left in the pantry and your kids' bellies are empty. And how hard it must be to ask for help that first time. What I would say is help is available. Please come and access it. Go to OregonFoodFinder.org. There are food assistance sites in every community across the state. Um, and we wanna make sure that no one experiences a hungry belly. It is your neighbors helping you. And we know that when you are in a position to help, you will help too. And we know this because every year we get donations with notes that say, because I've been there or because you helped me when I needed it. So anyone can get food if they need it, right? Do they have to um, prove that they're out of work or they have to show their salary? Is there any kind of identification needed? Absolutely not. There's no identification needed. For certain flows of food from the federal government, you need to attest that you are below 185% of poverty. If you're out of work, that's pretty easy. Um, uh, um, and for most folks, by the time they get to the place where they need um, help with food, that they easily uh, qualify. Let's talk about how people who are in a position to help, how they can help. And we have a website that um, people can check out, oregonfoodbank.org slash donate. Will you walk us through a little bit, Suzanne, of what you need? Are you taking donations or are you taking cash? What works the best? Yes, absolutely. Right now in this time, cash is absolutely the best. Um, for one thing, it limits person-to-person -person contact and we all need to do our part to slow the spread of the pandemic. Um, for another thing, we can send it anywhere instantly. Um, so if the food needs to be purchased in Portland or if it needs to be purchased in Reedport or in Burns, um, uh, all we have to do is make a phone call and say, we're sending you a check and it's so much easier for us to manage that. So yes, we urgently and eagerly ask the community to support us uh, financially at oregonfoodbank.org. And um, we have been so lucky to be such recipients of community generosity. I know uh, the sponsor of your show, Laurel, is Anika IBEW, which has made a really generous donation to Oregon Food Bank this last holiday season um, and is showing the way that the community can step forward in these difficult times. And cash also uh, stretches farther, doesn't it? How much does a dollar bring in for the Oregon Food Bank? How much food can you buy? Absolutely. Because we're buying by the truckload, we say that we can get three meals worth of food for every dollar that you donate. So we have about a minute left, Susanna, but um, is there anything else on your mind, something else you'd like to share with viewers tonight? 
Yeah, I would also like to mention that the single largest anti-hunger program in Oregon and across the country is SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps. Uh, data today showed that for every dollar spent in SNAP, it, it had an economic benefit in the community of a dollar and a half or a dollar and 80 cents. And our communities, especially in rural Oregon, really need that support right now. So if you and your family are hungry and you're not currently receiving SNAP, I urge you to go to the Oregon Department of Human Services. They're super nice, super effective folks who will get you set up with this lifeline during these difficult times. Well, I thank you so much, Susanna. I want to show people those websites again that might be helpful for people who might need food. You can go to a food pantry near you and you can find that at, at OregonFoodFinder.org. Or if you'd like to donate cash, you can go here to OregonFoodBank.org slash donate. Susanna Morgan from the Oregon Food Bank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for watching and listening. Remember, Straight Talk is now a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Search for KGW Straight Talk. Join us next week when we talk with the mayors of Beaverton, Gresham, and West Lynn. What are the challenges for our suburban mayors? We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Have a great week.